we're calling green structural adjustment this current period of the World Bank's attempts to reformat local states in order that they can borrow to fund their urban resilience infrastructure. So we think of this program as one which is making cities investable in ways they weren't previously. Yeah, my name is Patrick Bigger. I'm a lecturer in economic geography at the Lancaster Environment Center, Lancaster University in Northwest England. I am calling in from lockdown here in uh, beautiful Salford, England, uh, just about 500 meters from the city line with Manchester, uh, where I've been working and living and generally not leaving for what feels like forever. Welcome to City Road. I'm Dallas Rogers. And yes, that was Patrick calling in from the UK. And joining me in the studio is Dr. Sophie Weber, also from the university and co-host of City Road. Patrick and Sophie have been studying the World Bank and how the World Bank is trying to solve the urban resilience crisis. What is urban resilience? Well, it has to do with the incredible scale of climate impacts and the incredible speed of urbanisation in cities in the global south. Yeah, so the World Bank is projecting that there is going to be trillions and trillions of dollars um, needed to pay for infrastructure that will protect the world's most vulnerable people, cities, assets, communities and livelihoods. Trillions of dollars a year are projected, for instance, to just cover the costs of sea level rise um, in the next 10 to 20 years in some of the world's most vulnerable cities. So for them, climate change in the context of rapidly growing cities in the global south poses a really big problem for development. So for them, they think that the World Bank needs to facilitate investment in infrastructure that will protect these cities and people and assets from the impacts of climate change. This comes as sort of a shift to traditional World Bank practices, right? That people like Michael Goldman explore as being incredibly environmentally damaging, you know, things like extremely large dams, uh, the application of chemical fertilizers, all of these things that cause big environmental problems across the global south. And so now the bank is really turning its attention to how to do this economic development in a more environmentally friendly way. What's the motive of the World Bank in the urban resilience and finance agenda? So we're talking about cities in the global south that are particularly vulnerable to climate change, perhaps because they're most exposed to climate impacts, but also because they're marginalised with respect to the global economy and what that means in terms of their ability to pay for things that are going to protect them from climate change. The bank sees this as a kind of triple win situation, right? On the one hand, we have this problem of who's going to pay for all of this infrastructure. The bank projects that public finance alone is never going to be able to pay for this infrastructure. Um, On the other hand, we see a kind of stagnant global north finance capital, which is facing limited returns in northern capital markets, right? So there, there's this kind of extra liquidity concentrated in the hands of investors in the global north who are looking for new asset classes that might provide them with some returns. And it turns out the World Bank thinks that this infrastructure uh, for urban resilience in the global south is the kind of uh, investment that will satisfy um, or that might satisfy these 
private capital. And they see this as a win-win because they deal with climate change and they get to mobilise that surplus capital. Yep, yep. So they identified trillions and trillions of dollars in um, global capital markets. They're looking for essentially a special fix, somewhere to park their uh, money in the global south and get some returns. You've called this World Bank program a green structural adjustment. What do you mean by this? Green structural adjustment is what we're calling this World Bank paradigm to create urban resilience as a as an as an investment opportunity for this kind of overabundant um, northern capital. So we're calling it green structural adjustment in order to link it to the structural adjustment programs of the 1980s and 1990s. A response by the World Bank and the IMF to um, reformat national governments um, after they faced a balance of payments crisis. Okay, so the kinds of programs that we're looking at then were privatization of um, public services, things like water, electricity, um, reductions in agricultural subsidies, reducing environmental regulations to allow expanded extraction, reductions in public services, you know, like the public sector and so on. Okay, so it's a a major restructuring um, of nation states. Okay, so that's the structural adjustment bit. How does this relate to the green structural adjustment? Structural adjustment programs set in train a whole series of processes which have now led us to this green structural adjustment. But we think there's a couple of differences. Firstly, this is not about the nation state. This is explicitly about the city as the site of lending. And that's a really important change. What's the second bit of this? Secondly, this is focused on climate change. So it's a real shift away from the um, really terrible environmental implications of structural adjustment. And in some ways is trying to address some of those changes. We might say that climate change is one of the results of structural adjustment in terms of the extractivism um, that it allowed. Um, and the other thing too is the rapid urbanization that structural adjustment put in train. Okay, so this led essentially because of these agricultural subsidies that we've withdrawn, whole series of other dynamics. This is what led to this really rapid growth of cities, which is causing some of the problems that green structural adjustment is now trying to address. The other problem, the other difference then between structural adjustment programs and green structural adjustment is that rather than this being a kind of violent imposition from the World Bank um, because of this balance of payments crisis, essentially an overabundance of debt, this is about being able to access debt. Okay, so this is this is a kind of more disciplinary and persuasive approach, which is about encouraging cities to uh, borrow on capital markets in order to fund their infrastructure. So instead of being about too much debt, it is about too little debt. One of the things that it's doing is what you know you and I call green structural adjustment, which is doing this kind of economic development work through infrastructure provision in the city that is responsive to the challenges that climate change poses. We're calling green structural adjustment this current period of the World Bank's attempts to reformat local states in order that they can borrow to fund their urban resilience infrastructure. So we think of this program as one which is making cities investable in ways they weren't previously. Uh, And so this is largely reducing adaptation to questions of infrastructure provision. So uh, big spectacular projects often, uh, often things 
you know, but also things that, that people gen genuinely do want and need things like uh, water and sewage systems, uh, green energy production, uh, public transit, all these things. And so the bank is trying to figure out a way to make all of these needed urban infrastructure projects investable by private financiers largely located in the global north. And so they're not doing that by directly facilitate, you know, funding those projects. Instead, they're trying to create the enabling conditions by which financiers uh, using uh, Northern capital can come in and fund the infrastructure that kind of comes to stand in for climate resilience in the global South and global South cities um, and do so in a way that kind of creates a perpetual rent where capital can flow out of the South back to Northern investors. Okay, so that's all a bit uh, high level and conceptual. Can you give me some examples of how this plays out in practice? So I've been doing research in Jakarta, um, which many of you, many of our listeners will know. I've been doing research in Jakarta, where which is one of the most vulnerable places to climate impacts. The city is 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 sinking. Um, it's already below sea level in some places. It also rapidly floods during the monsoon, um, so it faces this kind of uh, river flooding and coastal flooding. In response to that, they've been building, trying to build large seawalls to try to protect the city. Uh, but there's a question about how that's going to be paid for. For the World Bank in Jakarta, they think that, um, and, and some of our interviewees say things like, any kind of infrastructure investment you make in Jakarta, you can pay for uh, with um, new kind of financial tools like land value capture. Okay, so if you can if you can capture the rents that private companies and individuals get from making investments in infrastructure, from public investments in infrastructure, then you'll be able to pay for that infrastructure on its own. So these are the kind of financial tools that the World Bank thinks will be able to build, will be able to pay for this essential urban resilience infrastructure. So in my fieldwork um, for this project, uh, I was interviewing um, um, the World Bank in Jakarta, uh, but also talking to um, World Bank staff in Washington, D.C. and in some of the regional uh, World Bank offices about how they conceptualize markets for urban resilience, which is what they call it. They, they're really trying to marketize urban resilience. How is the World Bank putting this idea of green structural adjustment to work? So we have never done research in Vietnam, but uh, cities in Vietnam are some of at the forefront of this green structural adjustment paradigm, um, in addition to vulnerable cities like Jakarta. So, for instance, in Kanto City, it was one of the first uh, cities that the World Bank moved to kind of progress this green structural adjustment paradigm. It participated in this program that it called the City Strength Diagnostic. Okay, so we're going to get lost in World Bank acronyms. That's part of how you know you've, you've done World Bank work when you get lost in these acronyms. Okay, so they participated in this City Strength program, and it was a kind of diagnostic tool where they assessed what the city's vulnerabilities were, a kind of rapid vulnerability assessment. 
And through this program, the city identified that, surprising no one, Kanto is in the Mekong Delta, that flooding and rapid urbanization were a big problem for the city and that they needed to address this. So what they did was the World Bank initiated a kind of technical assistance and loan program um, with Kanto City through the national government. And part of that was investing in uh, flood protection infrastructure and a whole series of other infrastructures around transportation and, and urban goods and services, water and sewage and things. Um, and so they added this kind of urban resilience layer onto this program. As part of this, the city government participated in these training programs that the World Bank runs through what they call their city resilience program. And through these training programs, they produced a number of reports which identified the kind of deficiencies that Kanto had that stopped it from accessing um, private capital markets, including things like not having a credit rating. And so one of the things they found, they kind of have two layers. They have these kind of technical issues and they had these financial issues. So for instance, on the technical issues, they found that the private sector had a really big appetite for um, swapping development rights for land but that the Canto City only had a paper cadaster, okay? They only had a paper map. And so in order to be able to properly structure these deals with developers to swap land for, um, for infrastructure development rights, they needed to move their maps online. They needed to make it a kind of a fungible map, right? So that was a kind of technical program that the city had to get up to speed with in order to be able to pursue land value capture and other PPPs with developers in that city. And the World Bank helped them do that? The World Bank paid for this technical assistance, yeah. Another thing they identified was, as I said before, that the city can't actually structure PPPs. It's not allowed to structure PPPs. So they had to set up these other facilities through which um, they could structure public-private partnerships in order to be able to uh, get private financiers to pay for and kind of contract with these big consulting companies to build this uh, new infrastructure to attain urban resilience. The obvious question, I guess, is so much work goes into making these cities, these government yeah. regimes amenable to Global North Capital yeah. Yeah. And the objective seems to be to deal with climate change, yeah. but yet so much of what is happening in the climate change sphere is happening because of the actions yeah. of the global yeah. north. Yeah. So how does the World Bank rationalise all of that? Yeah, I don't think the World Bank spends a lot of time rationalising that. I mean, they're pursuing this program at the same time as they're continuing to fund um, the expansion of coal-fired power stations in China, right? So there is no kind of rationalizing of the of the kind of production of climate change and the response to climate change. And and I think that that is true across finance in general, yeah. right? There's a, a story out yesterday about how much uh, private water companies following the privatization of the water sector in England in 1989, how much money they had returned to uh, shareholders in the form of dividends and their senior management pay packages. So under the tune of like 56 billion pounds since 1989 have been returned to investors and, and senior management, even as the quality of infrastructure continues to degrade across England, uh, the infrastructure is underinvested and uh, ratepayers are left holding the bag, both for increased debts 
uh, that these private companies have taken on, and their their money is effectively being siphoned from ratepayers up to the top to shareholders. And so that's a sort of national scale issue in the the problem of turning over uh, infrastructure provision to things like public private partnerships with the bank, which the bank is very keen to enable. Does it kind of view finance as the solution to climate change? We can kind of finance our way out of the climate change problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it certainly sees finance as, as, as the solution to the climate problem, but also that climate change can be the solution to the to their overaccumulation problem. And which one is that? Did climate change become the container to deal with the capital and that is actually what this is about or is there a desire to deal with climate change and this is a win-win or so i think you know the world bank is as an institution is so big it would be impossible to know its kind of singular motive and i really do think that people in the world bank the people who work for the world bank they they genuinely want to address climate change it worries them they have young children they're liberals they're really concerned about climate change right and i have no doubt that they work on a day to day to address climate change but the bank is a bank it depends on circulating finance that's what it does it has to give loans and it has to get repayments on those loans that's how it operates and so you know part of its move towards climate change is also about maintaining its relevance at a time where it is no longer really the kind of decider about what happens in the development sphere. Um, so becoming a climate lender is also about maintaining influence and relevance in the kind of global order. But then there's a much broader ethical dimension to this also, where the cities and, and the people who live in them who are most bearing the brunt of environmental change, of increased extreme weather events, of less predictable weather, um, you know, so drought, Sea level, rise, sea level rise, flooding, uh, all of these issues. These people in the in the global south are the ones who bear the least responsibility for climatic change, and they're the ones who are going to be left paying for it if uh, all of these infrastructure projects that are meant to summon urban resilience are left to uh, or, or are uh, kind of contracted out to the private sector and made investable. And have you seen any good examples of the intersection of climate change adaptation and finance? Yeah. So Patrick and I are working on this with some other colleagues at the moment. We're trying to find what we're thinking of as reparative climate infrastructure. And we're using this idea of reparations ecology that uh, Jason Moore and Raj Patel developed in their book. And so we're trying to think about infrastructure and its financing according to three different ideas. We're thinking about it in terms of repair and reparations and decommodification. And so are there infrastructures and their financial underpinnings that are interested in repairing nature and social relations? Are there ones that are interested in reparations? So this is thinking about climate debts. Okay, so what do we owe one another because of the climate damage that we might have caused? And what do we owe across space, which I think is really important. What do we owe from where we are here in Sydney to these really vulnerable uh, places? Okay, so we're thinking about, you know, justice reparations in that sense, in terms of debts and, and what we owe. And then we're also thinking about decommodification. So does any of this infrastructure or finance essentially operate to, um, I guess, create no space for finance anymore, to kind of bring something out of the private financial sphere into the public sphere? 
So I guess the question is then, is the green structural adjustment actually leading to a dramatic recirculation of finance from the global north to the global south? So the really important thing about these projects is that they're just projected, right? It's just the World Bank imagining a way to, to, to funnel private capital into these infrastructure investments and the role that they can play in kind of facilitating um, these flows from the private financiers to protect these vulnerable local people. And this is the thing that we're really trying to show in our paper is that there aren't actually any of these serious financial flows happening right now. This is just a gamble. But the thing that we think is really troubling is that this gamble is requiring a major restructure of the local state. Okay, so the World Bank is trying to facilitate these flows. And in order to do that, they're setting up a whole series of kind of technical training programs for local staff so that local staff become much better able to implement PPPs. The, the program is largely this kind of administrative capacity building program, but in doing so um, really significantly restructures the local state. And that's interesting because the all the work that you need to do to actually make these types of public-private partnerships or to allow the capital from the global north to actually land in these countries, you have to do all of this work to Mm -hmm. reconfigure the state and society beforehand. So one of the major problems they face, the World Bank faces, is that they lend only to national governments. They can't lend to cities. And many cities can't access capital markets themselves. They're just like within their legal frameworks, not able to. Many cities can't create public-private partnerships. They're not able to within their kind of the way they operate with the national state. And so this actually requires new legal frameworks for PPPs, new institutions. And that's the kind of work that the bank is trying to do to create the conditions for this capital to affix locally. Do you like this? No, this is terrible. It's super terrible. It sucks. It's intensely unfair. It doesn't correspond to what we might think of as a just transition to a climatically changed future. And so... We need to be doing a lot more to press alternative ways, uh, new ways, innovative ways of thinking about how to do infrastructure provision and resilience in cities, not just in the South, but kind of across the world. This means that who gets to decide what urban resilience looks like and where it happens is going to be up to private capital, right? So the projects which get funded are only going to be those that are deemed investable projects. So your public goods um, that benefit the most vulnerable in the city, they're not going to become investable. But this regime of um, green structural adjustment that we call it is all about letting private financiers decide which projects are worthy of their capital and what those projects are going to look like. The, The kind of local state doesn't get to determine that anymore. been listening to City Road on 2SCR 107.3 FM in Sydney. I'm Dallas Rogers. I hope to see you next time.